This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation 14. We're going to be looking at that today. Before we do, let's, uh, let's huddle up here for a minute. Um, I want us to spend a little bit of time over the next two to three months uh, in this service uh, on Sunday mornings to be thinking about our theology of church, our theology of church. Last 11 months have challenged Christians and pastors all over the globe to uh, revisit what the scriptures teach about church. And uh, we can't miss this opportunity to be thinking about what the scriptures call us to regarding church. So we're going to do that because it's a big concept. It's a big topic. It's practical. I was talking with a colleague in ministry a couple of weeks ago, and he... um, he announced to me that the church where, he, where he's one of the pastors on staff is, is planting a church. They're starting a new church. I said, well, my ears perked up. Our vision here is to plant churches. And uh, when people ask me where, I don't know yet, southeast Wisconsin, somewhere. But uh, my ears perked up. I turned to him. I said, where are you planting? And he said, online. I said, online. I've never heard of that. Must be a city in California. <laughs> Uh, he said, yeah, we're, uh, we're planting online. We're even receiving membership applications already from all over the country. So these would be people who never shake hands with each other, never give each other a hug, never have a face-to-face conversation, and never listen to each other sing out of tune during the worship service. Um <laughs> uh, my, uh, my initial response was to kind of do a thought experiment. Curious minds like to do that. I thought to myself, what if every church on the planet sold its building and instead we leased a small office space, just enough room to fit a worship band in there, some cameras, computers, and we took everything online, everything, everything. You wouldn't have to leave your living room to do church. What do you think? Some of you want to scratch my eyes out as I'm, uh, as, yeah, you've got the look on your, on your face. So I, I went there for a little bit, and as he talked some more, I thought to myself, you know, online church is a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction in terms. It's as close to a married bachelor as you'll ever see. <laughs> the fact of the matter is the only authoritative teaching we have on the church recognizes just one legitimate manifestation of church, and that's a flesh and blood gathering. Now, somebody's going to say, well, that's because the authoritative teaching on the church was written in the pre-digital age. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is to say, no, God orchestrated the events of human history in such a way that the church would be born in the pre-digital age, and the authoritative teaching on it would be written in the pre-digital age without reference to it. Additionally, uh, we've seen in the book of Revelation that we can expect as Christians to be opposed, right? We've noticed that in the book. There's more blood to be spilled as we keep working through it. We can expect to be opposed. 
The gospel message is offensive. Jesus said, you will be hated because of me. We can expect opposition. The fact that we can broadcast the gospel over the internet right now is a luxury. But mark my words, those days are numbered. Those days are numbered. Now, when, when this, the whole world locked down almost a year ago, we went to live stream, we did lots of digital things, and that was great, but it was never, ever started, never started to become a permanent fixture here. For those reasons and many, many, many more that I'll share with you in the next two to three months. You remember in Revelation 10, John is told to eat the scroll, and what happened? It was sweet to the taste. And then he got gut rot. What was God saying? He's saying, some of the things I have to say to you will be sweet to your palate. Other things I have to say to you will cause you indigestion. The role of a pastor is to tell you the truth, no matter how it makes you feel. Okay? That's my job. And that's particularly true today as we look at Revelation 14. Revelation 14. You got to remember the book of Revelation is an art gallery. It's not a movie. What do you do in art galleries? You walk into a room, you take in the painting, right? Not sure what else you do, but you take in the painting. (laughs) Then you move to the next one, right? You finish that room, and then what happens? You go to the next room, maybe you sit on the bench. You look for something, not sure what, right? You take it in, take it in, take it in. That's the book of Revelation. It's not like watching a movie where you've got these sequential streaming of scenes, one after another. So in Revelation 12, we're told that that, um, the perennial difficulty that faces the church in every age is the rage of Satan. God pulls the curtain back. He's trying to answer the question. Why do Christians face so many challenges? Why are there hardships? We can look around and we look for material causes, right? But God says, yeah, that's part of it, but you got to pull the curtain back to see underneath all that. It's the rage of Satan. And then chapter 13 comes along and God is saying, now he, he works through two henchmen. Satan, the rage of Satan, is exercised through two henchmen, The beast from the sea, the beast from the land, the state, false religion, false ideologies, false teaching. Because keep in mind what Satan's objective is. His ultimate objective in your life is to instill fear and to deceive you, to lead you astray. Deceive you and lead you astray. Now, we come to chapter 14, and it doesn't appear to have anything to do with the previous two chapters. In fact, what I would say Revelation 14 is doing, it's actually Revelation's way of preaching a sermon. Revelation 14 is the sermon. And as we'll see, it is going to give you emotional whiplash. Because it portrays the joys of heaven. And the torments of hell. It's a text that talks about eternal life and eternal 
punishment. It's a somber text. It's a heavy text. And its gravity is unmistakable. Let me read it. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Let's pray.
Lord, I pray that you would break through the cultural barriers that oppose and resist messages like the one contained in this chapter. In your mercy, in your love, you have warned us. I pray we would take it to heart. And that it it would all function in such a way as to raise the gospel of Jesus Christ high. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. This is the heavenly Mount Zion, or heaven for short. Just like we saw in chapter 7, the 144,000 are the symbolic number of the totality of God's redeemed people. This is the same group of people we encountered in chapter 7 who received a seal on their foreheads. This verse tells us what's written there, the name of the Lamb and the Father. Are you included in the number John saw? Verse 2, and I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 had been redeemed from the earth. This is one of the places where the caricatures of heaven, sitting on clouds, playing harps, comes to the fore. Heaven is much more. Notice the word like. It was like that. It was like that. Not quite that. Like that. In the Old Testament, harps and music symbolize joy and gladness. That's the point of this. This is getting across to us a scene of joy. The sound John hears is us. It's us. In the new heavens and the new earth. Singing full-throatedly. We saw this in chapter 5. There's something about the worthiness of the Lamb that elicits our loudest praise. The worship services in heaven, friends, will not be quiet affairs. They sang a new song. New song is rich in the Old Testament. It's usually done in response to a fresh act of deliverance. Here's something new God did. Here's a new song. Here's something new God did. Here's a new song. The fresh act of deliverance in this case is God ushering believers into his perfect presence. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. No, I don't believe those in heaven will be only celibate men. This is symbolic. The Apostle Paul makes a similar comment, 2 Corinthians 11. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. 
In other words, the people that John sees in heaven possess a single-minded loyalty to Christ. During their lives, they practiced spiritual monogamy. Leon Morris says Christians are those who keep themselves free from intercourse with the pagan world system. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. First fruits was the practice of harvesting the first fruits that came up in the season, offering those to the Lord. The redeemed community are the first fruits of the human community offered to God and the Lamb, belonging to Him, His possession. No lie was found in their mouths, they are blameless. I don't think this is saying what characterizes Christians is they don't lie in the typical sense we use the term. It includes that, but it's much more than that. In the Old Testament, devotion to idols is described as lying. Isaiah ridicules the idolatry of his day, saying about the idolater, such a person feeds on ashes, a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? The lie in his right hand is an idol. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now we're going to see three consecutive angels come out and announce their various proclamations. I don't think that this is talking about some end time only event where angels appear in the air to proclaim these messages. You remember from Revelation chapter 1, Jesus identifies angels with churches. Each church is addressed to the angel in Smyrna. There is something about a connection between angels and the church. This is the message of the church. This is the message of the church. Advertisers rent airplanes to fly messages over crowded beaches and sporting events. That's the mission of the church. It's the mission of the church. John sees something like this. It's bearing a message from heaven. And what's the message? It's the eternal gospel. Be easy to conclude it's the gospel salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that's certainly true, but there's a unique edge to this angel's proclamation of the gospel in verse 7. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel work along similar lines. Jesus says the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. If you wanted to sum up the entire book of Revelation's purpose, you could use these words. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment is coming. This really is the basic message Christians speak to the world. There is a God. Give him the glory he deserves. Appeal to his mercy for forgiveness. Honor him with your lives. It's the basic message of the church. Verse 8, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. 
It's a pronouncement of impending judgment. Remember, Babylon didn't exist in John's day. It was buried under many, many feet of sand. It became code word for Rome. And it also serves as a precursor and a type of godless nation to come. Many godless nations to come. Nations that have served as greenhouses for the flourishing of idolatry. They face an inevitable demise. It's not just nations that have served as bastions of tyrannical oppression that will face this somber judgment. It's also those who have propagated a sinful seduction into idolatry. The sexual perversion that has been catapulted out of this nation into every corner of the globe will not go unnoticed on judgment day. Verse 9, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their foreheads or their hand or on their hand. Now we know from chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, that unbelievers receive this metaphorical mark for, among other reasons, economic reasons to flourish within contemporary society. But accepting the mark is not merely an economic decision. It reflects their highest allegiance. Showing that Rome, in that day, Rome and all its glittering wealth and power are more important to them than God. It's important to note that God will not be co-opted to bolster the claims of any nation. He's no nation's assistant. And his most precious people are not a geopolitical nation. His most precious people are the repentant and faithful from every nation, tribe, people, and language. You have more in common with your brothers and sisters in Christ in Burkina Faso, Africa, whom you've never met, than you do with your unbelieving neighbor whom you know well. Verse 10, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. The wine of God's wrath is an Old Testament expression often used, depicting punishment of those who rebel against him. The language of fire and sulfur is metaphorical, but it's metaphorical of something. It's not metaphorical of nothing. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. The smoke of their torment never ends. Revelation uses this word torment seven times, each time indicating conscious suffering. This unending human experience creates intellectual and emotional dissonance in the minds of modern Westerners these days. And we'll somberly consider that in due course. Verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. So these remarkably strong warnings that we've been reading out in verses 9 to 11 are not written for unbelievers. John didn't write this book for them. He wrote this book for the church. Remember, the whole thing is a letter written to seven churches. So it's addressed to believers and it's intended to provoke them to persevere until the end. That's why it's here. 
Verse 13, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Now, way back in chapter one, I mentioned there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Seven beatitudes, blessed are, happy are, joy-filled are, just like the beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. There are seven in the book of Revelation. The first one, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what's written in it, because the time is near. This is the second blessed statement. So we don't have any from, from, from 1 till 14. This is the second one. And it's such a contrarian verse. Do you see what it said? It's such a contrarian verse. For the believer, it is a blessing to die. <laughs> they rest from the toils marking this present evil age. They experience relief from the pressures that constantly assail us. For the believer to die is a blessing. And that person is happy. Verse 14, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. The previous section forewarned of the judgment to come. Jesus now arrives on the scene to enact the judgment. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. There are two harvests in this section of Revelation, you've got one, 14 through 16, and you've got another harvest, 17 through 20. These two verses here, 15 and 16, are implying a wheat harvest because the term ripe is probably better translated dried out, a term used for grain that is ready to be harvested. John the Baptist contrasted the wheat of the godly with the chaff of the ungodly. In one parable I've mentioned before, Jesus contrasts the godly wheat with the weeds. So this harvest, the full measure of believers have come in and Jesus harvests them for eternity with him. It's the wheat harvest, the harvest of believers. The wheat has come in. The full complement believers is there. Verse 17, another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city. And blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So the first harvest is wheat. The second, grapes. The first harvest is believers to salvation. The second is unbelievers to judgment. 
And it's among the most graphic depictions of God's wrath in all the Bible. In the Old Testament, treading the wine press is an image of God's judgment. The practice of treading out grapes to make wine was common in the ancient world. Grapes would be loaded into a huge vat with tiny holes in the floor. The girls would kick off their sandals and jump in and march around on the grapes, crushing them with their feet. The juice would flow into a collection container underneath. In this passage, it's the unbelieving world that is thrown at the great winepress of God's wrath where they are trampled. The blood of those judged flows as high as the bridle on a horse for 200 miles. While this again is pure imagery, it's not imagery of nothing. While the imagery isn't literal, it is horrific. So let's work through some applications, starting with this last section of text. First, we are prone to placing a high-gloss veneer over sin. When people hear about the awfulness of judgment and the eternity of torment, they quickly conclude God's judgment of the unbelieving world is excessive and therefore can't be true. To charge God with excessive punishment, however, smuggles in an assumption that we've correctly diagnosed the severity of the thing being punished. In other words, to say eternal punishment can't possibly fit the crime is to conclude, I know the true severity of the crime committed and it doesn't warrant eternal punishment. I'm not so sure we want to assume we know the true severity of sin. I'm not comfortable claiming that knowledge without having something else to measure it by. And why, I'll mention in just a moment. What if instead we start with the assumption that we know the severity of the punishment? Eternal conscious punishment and work backwards to understand the nature of the offense that incites it. If eternal punishment is indeed what those two words plainly mean, what does that say about the nature of sin? What words would you use to describe the nature of sin if its penalty is eternal punishment? Heinous, abhorrent, Hideous, odious, revolting. Sin is far worse than we think it is. None of these descriptors are overstatements. In fact, if anything, they're still not strong enough to capture the severity of sin. See, the problem we have with this is our own sin nature prevents us from seeing its severity, it's the way it works. It's precisely how sin works. Sin works in such a way as to blind us from seeing its true nature. You can't. Our sin nature will always work to put a little bit more positive spin on it. That's what it does. 
There's no way for you to be able to stare at your sin and see its true severity simply with the naked eye. Because your sin has put a cloud over your eyes that prevents you from seeing what it really is. If you start rather with the clarity of eternal punishment, you'll begin to better understand the grotesqueness of sin. Second, related to this, diminishing the punishment actually diminishes the cross of Christ. Eternal punishment is awful. But to diminish its awfulness is to diminish the price Jesus paid to free us from it. At the end of the day, what eternal punishment measures is how much Christ paid for those who escape it. The measure of his torment, Jesus' torment, and by the way, we should never assume we know the measure of Jesus' torment on the cross. Never. The measure of his torment in ways I can't begin to understand is the measure of torment we deserve. And he bore. So if you see that and you believe that, you will find it more and more difficult to contemplate the cross for very long without tears. One writer who has helped on an emotional level for me is John Newton. Most people know John Newton as the slave trader turned pastor who wrote Amazing Grace. His writings are copious. He wrote a lot. One of the hymns he wrote captures this. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. Oh, can it be upon a tree the Savior died for me? My soul is thrilled, my heart is filled to think he died for me. Third, warning of God's judgment calls for fearing him, not arguing with him. It would be wise for us to remember the holy God will inflict his just judgment on sin, whether or not we give him permission to do so. When the angel announces this judgment, he says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So the announcement of judgment isn't for the purpose of arousing debate, but rather for bending the knee in reverence, in submission, repentance, 
devotion. Fourth, does your life look like you're God's property? Christian, you have the name of the Father and the Lamb on your forehead. You belong to him. Do you bear the family resemblance? Does your life look like your God's property? Those described in heaven are given remarkable descriptions. Undivided loyalty to Christ, spiritually monogamous. They follow the lamb wherever he goes, free from idolatry, blameless. Does your life look like this? Does it look like your God's property? And we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But we'll never be saved by workless faith. Where Christ calls us to go, we go. What he calls us to do, we do. His way becomes our way. Following Christ involves belief in his teaching, submission to his commands, and the zealous promotion of the gospel cause. As Christ sacrificed himself for us, we offer ourselves as living sacrifice in service to God. Does your life look like your God's property? Fifth and finally, our loudest praise claims the high ground. Here's the question. Why are we repeatedly given this vision of the end? repeatedly given this vision of the end. We saw it in chapter 7. We've got it here in chapter 14. We've got more to come. John keeps getting these visions of the end. They just kind of pop up throughout the book. The end, the redeemed community, the people of God in heaven, the heavenly Mount Zion. The full complement of believers in God's presence. He's constantly given these visions that flash forward to the end. Why is that happening? Revelation explains that we will have difficulties to endure. War, economic breakdown, civil strife, sickness, disease, opposition from nations and national leaders, persecution, martyrdom. Revelation recalibrates our expectations for this life, which is lived in the wilderness, not on the beach. This is precisely why we're given multiple visions of the end. By seeing the divinely ordained end of our salvation, we are encouraged as we face hardship. John's example urges us to think from the end of history back to our present trials. Rather than starting with where we're at right now in our weakness and doubt and affliction, and and then looking forward from them with anxiety to our future prospects, we should reverse the process. We should instead fix our minds on the certainty of our future where the lamb stands in victory and work backwards to find our hope in present trials. I hope you make that a personal discipline in your life. There are two things every Christian needs to think about every day. Every day, your death and your eternal home. Two things every Christian should think about every day. You got to think about your death every day. And think about your eternal home with Christ every day.
The movie Gettysburg relates the exploits of General John Buford. Some of you remember this several years ago. He commanded the Northern Cavalry during the decisive battle of the Civil War. And uh, Buford had suffered through prior defeats when the Southerners enjoyed superior terrain. At one moment in the movie, he growled saying, we must deny the high ground to the enemy. And they did. They captured the heights and they won the battle. See, when you fix your mind on the certainty of your future, you claim the high ground. An example of this is found in 2 Chronicles 20. It tells of how the godly king Jehoshaphat received news of an onslaught of armies from the east. In worldly terms, it was hopeless. They were severely overpowered, outmanned. Probably similar to what John and his readers felt as they lived under the oppression of Roman tyranny. But Jehoshaphat lifted his face to heaven. He gathered all the people to pray for salvation. And in reply, God told the king to take the soldiers and advance on the enemy in faith. And we read that Jehoshaphat pushed the army forward, led by priests who were singing Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. You picture it? This hopelessly outnumbered army is advancing on a superior military while singing. The Bible tells us what happened next. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah. And they were defeated. Now, this example does not reason that the only Christian response to spiritual opposition is to hold a hymn sing. But what I think it does is say to us, look, when outmanned, when overpowered, if we take our eyes off our daunting opposition and fix them on the glory of of our mighty Savior, we may be refreshed with spiritual power and hope. Our loudest Jesus-obsessed praise helps us claim the high ground. Amen? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Undoubtedly, there is somebody in your life, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's take a moment, let's take a moment and let's pray for them. Pray that you would be given an opportunity to talk about Jesus with them. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in them to get them to see Jesus 
in all his glory, his beauty, his saving power. And Lord, we do lift up the faces, the names of those running through the minds of your church. We pray that you would break through the hardest stone, the heart that has been hardened for years, decades unreceptive that you draw them to yourself we thank you God that nobody is out of reach not one soul is out of reach and Lord as your redeemed people we know what it is to be the recipients of your grace. Lord, I pray that would overflow with an abundance of joy that cannot be explained. Jesus Christ has come into our world. He's lived, died, rose again has ascended to the right hand of him who sits on the throne and reigns in power. And we belong to him. We worship you for that now. To the glory of Jesus, amen.